Ojjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjjj
Pujapad Sridhar used to like to say that if the Absolute Truth is joyful by nature, Anandomayo Vyasat, is what the sutras say. The nature of Brahman is uh, this um, blissful, the nature of the Absolute, blissful. This is what it's meant in one sense in the Bible, for example, when it says that God created the world out of nothing. It means for no reason, without any reason without any purpose. It's often taken out of, like, out of thin air or something like that. But I think more readily might be under, better understood out of nothing, out of, if we look for a cross-cultural or religious correspondent in Hinduism, the idea is lokalatulilakayavalyam. It means the same thing. The world comes out of nothing. It means that it comes out of no, with no, out of no necessity. God has no necessity. Love knows no reason. Joy is an exercise of one's completeness and fullness rather than a movement based on a sense of emptiness and want and need. So, the world's made out of nothing. It means it's, it's, its source is the joy of Brahman express the absolute, expressing itself. Sometimes it's described in the Shruti that the one became many out of joy for the sake of it. experiencing the joy that it is, so to speak, from another side. So, if the point is, the absolute is joyful by nature, then it must exist and it must be cognitive, must be aware to taste bliss. Something could exist, but uh, need not necessarily be aware of itself, nor joyful. If something is cognitive by nature, then it has to exist, but it not, doesn't necessarily have to be blissful. But if it's blissful, then it must also be cognitive and, and uh, have some existential standing. So, existence, knowledge, and bliss. These, of course, bond with Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan, features of the, of the Absolute, of the Godhead, that are realized, experienced variously, which means by various methods of approach. And the approach that corresponds with the realization of Bhagavan, that is Bhakti. The approach that corresponds with the cognitive aspect of the Absolute, the Paramatma, that is yoga. Then that is described in this chapter. In this chapter we'll find that this, this term Paramatma is invoked for the first time. Then the path that corresponds with Brahman, or the existential aspect of ultimate reality, uh, that is the, the path of Gyan, of knowledge. So, Bhagavan, that is the discussion of such as the theological side of the Gita, that's the center of the Gita. We're just, just approaching that here in the sixth chapter, still in the, in the explanation of largely the psychology of, of yoga, and this chapter particularly especially and I specializing on or focusing on yoga as we uh, largely uh, are acquainted with it in the world today, hatha yoga, kind of physical yoga, and the psychic dimension of yoga as well, astanga yoga. Hmm? This is described in the Yoga Sutras, 
at some length by Patanjali, and one chapter of the Gita is dedicated to that. And again, for the purpose of contrasting it with bhakti, that we may understand the excellence of bhakti. Bhakti means, of course, love. So, an approach of the Absolute that is, uh, is motivated by love, or what it would be another way to put that, that is unmotivated. That is for the purpose for the, of the Absolute only, which is, of course, doesn't have a purpose, as we said. Uh, it is existing, God is existing only only for joy. So the path, then, is a joyful path. Sushukam kartumavyayam is a joyful path. Bhakti. Love, love path. Now that's not explicitly highlighted for the most part in this chapter, but it is nonetheless. Because again, as I say, this chapter in dealing with the Stanga Yoga, which is meant for the approaching the Paramatma, feature of the Absolute, is nonetheless, in order to be effective, nonetheless it needs to be, uh, have some ingress of bhakti. And the chapter will ultimately lead to the doorway of bhakti that takes us then into the middle section of the Gita, the theology of the Gita, discussing all about Bhagwan and bhakti directly, and different types of bhakti. There there will also be bhakti mixed with yoga. Here is yoga mixed with bhakti. Different. And bhakti is, is primary with admixture of yoga, That'll be one thing. When yoga is primary with slight admixture of, of bhakti, that'll be another result. So there are many, many paths. And um, of those that are authentic, ego-effacing, spiritual paths, then uh, they will lead to different aspects of the absolute, different ways of... Uh, different experiences of... Uh, of uh, ultimate reality. The Gita again is interested with the full feature of ultimate reality. Bhagavan with, with feeling, God with feeling, the God with feeling, with, with attachments, I mean, wherein, in other words, I mean, in a positive way, just like you're attached to someone whom you love, something like that. So love has that type of uh, nature that it, uh, it's possessive. So the God is possessive of his devotees. He's bhakatavatsal. Of all of the qualities of Bhagwan, this is the most prominent. That uh, he's uh, very affectionately disposed toward his devotees. He's he's compromised, so to speak, by their love, biased, and so forth. If we study something about love psychology in this world then we can understand something about bhakti. This is what Rupa Goswami has done in that effort to explain the love world of, of devotion, of bhakti, Krishna bhakti. He drew from what was current at the time, uh, writings regarding uh, love psychology, although they were secular by nature and he used the terms invoked therein to describe various nuanced states of, of love and varieties of love, love for friends, love for lovers, love for children, love for the teacher, and so on and so forth. And, and uh, as I say, all many, it was a fairly, fairly uh, for the time, comprehensive 
analysis of the psychology of, of love and, uh, and as it was expressed, for example, in the drama and, and in the theater and in arts and so forth. So this terminology and analysis, which is very human and uh, secular, he invoked this terminology to explain, to help us to get a handle on the nature of, of the fullest expression of absolute love, love of Godhead, love of Krishna. Point being that there's, if we, if we look closely enough at humanity, we're going to find something about Bhagwan, about our source. It's not that the uh, heart of humanity beats in a, in, in a way that's that much different from reality. After all, if the one became many, then there must be some similarity between ourselves and our source. The, the cause, the effect is found, uh, the, the cause is found inside the effect. What comes out of the cause is represented um, to an extent in the effect. So, this is why, in one sense, the bhakti is, is, is the full face of yoga. Even though often expressions of it don't look anything like the kind of yoga that's described here in this chapter and the kind of yoga that we're most familiar with, that's not necessarily uh, not part of bhakti. And some of that is also invoked in, in bhakti, but some of the expressions of bhakti are, of course, very different. Dancing instead of sitting, for example. Quite a, quite a contrast to, to dance and, and ecstatically and, and to sit in poise and, uh, and peace. But the world is, of course, uh, much about, uh, about movement and, uh, and much more about love than it is about peace. Peace is kind of in between war and love, something like that. So... Uh, if we study human nature, which is part of the effect right, of the cause from which the world comes, as as understood in the in the uh, spiritual disciplines, then uh, by studying human nature, we should know, find something out about the absolute. Uh, if we study the heartbeat of humanity, then we can understand something about the heartbeat of of God. And based on this idea, it would be easier for us to understand the universality, then, of bhakti. In terms of its application, and in terms of, in terms of its, how much it relates to the very nature of being as we experience it. How, in other words, natural it is for uh, humanity. Sometimes a spiritual path seems a little unnatural for us. We're going and flowing in a certain direction and it seeks to regulate us and take us away from that and, and so forth and restrict us in so many ways. And there's some scope for that within bhakti as well, but if we study it as a whole, we see that actually it, um, of, of the different yoga uh, disciplines, spiritual disciplines, it comes most uh, close to the human heart what it's about, what it beats for, what, what we live for, and so forth. 
so universal in that sense and very close to home and its application as well is very natural and there are the whole range of human activities for example can be expressed they can be uh, expressed within the context of bhakti and not only a whole range of human activities but even beyond that the non-human species can participate in uh, in bhakti so it's uh, it's very broad and universal in this respect and very close to home if we study it carefully very natural if we study what the human is about we'll find some correspondence with bhakti so we're building gita is building up to that here and it's coming now to talk about dhyan yoga or ashtanga yoga which is one of the popular forms of yoga one of the more popular yoga teachers patabi joyce recently passed away he was an ashtanga yoga teacher actually in a vaishnava tradition of vishishta dvaita vedanta a little bit different than the gaudiya tradition but a vaishnava tradition as well he saw the ultimate goal of life to be the attainment of bhakunta i think uh, his guru must have been uh, from shri sampradaya vaishnava uh, vaishnava sampradaya i think aingar uh, is a famous yoga teacher also same same teacher they had they had interest in 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 yoga sutras of patanjali and so forth uh, this is a different discipline from bhakti it's a yoga but it's a different discipline it's a different discipline from from uh, the popular uh, advaita vedanta a different end also is described there different from advaita vedanta and somewhat different from the bhakti tradition as well so here it comes in the gita it's not that and for this we're not to understand well there gita speaks about different types of yoga pick and choose which one you want and and um it's just showcasing them all no it's it's showcasing them if you study carefully in a way to shed light on bhakti because after all it's spoken by bhagwan not only by bhagwan but krishna swayam bhagwan of all manifestations of bhagwan of which there are many Krishna is the full and and this also tells us something about how bhakti is close to home close to the human heart because the fullest manifestation of brahman is human like this is what the scriptures are telling us a very interesting point that when the godhead fully expresses itself it comes closest to humanity it's in human life that we you know begin this love's pursuit it's not that other species of life don't express some empathy um, but it's limited care for the young and so forth and uh, some rudimentary expressions of love are there in other less complex forms of life but in human life it seems this altruism philanthropy and and romantic life and so forth this is takes the center stage doesn't it it uh, it's what makes humanity difficult to understand from a scientific point of view it's it's not really that well explained by the eccentricity of humanity that by by evolution for example explains something but 
but uh, humanity is very different from whatever it may, may or may not have evolved from, as it's looked at from a scientific point of view. A lot of similarities, but very, very, very different at the same time. And as I say, the fullest manifestation of the Absolute of Bhagawan appears human-like. Human life is about, uh, about, it's really about giving, about, about doing something voluntarily. It's about, uh, about thinking of others, stepping outside of oneself. It gives us a greater opportunity to do that, to do things voluntarily means to express uh, sacrifice. We've many times emphasized this point. I want to speak of in the pursuit of relationships and romantic love and so forth. This is what humans write about and are bewildered about and can never quite figure out and so forth. So at the same time, as I say, the fullest expression of Bhagawan as Krishna is most human-like and romantic and so far away but very close. That's what the Upanishads say, Tadure Tadvantike. He's very far and very near at the same time. This is Krishna. That's the God Upanishad, Isha Upanishad. But it's in this verse it's speaking about Krishna. Very far away, yet very near at the same time. As I've many times said, if there is to be intimacy with the infinite and the finite, then the infinite will have to take a finite like appearance in order for there to be intimacy. Otherwise, if it maintains an appearance of infinite, then there'll be some difficulty in terms of intimacy. If we're too close to the infinite, we'll feel how finite we are, and there'll be some reservation on our part to move and to interact and to reciprocate and so forth. If your love is is for like-minded people, the more someone is like you, the more you feel comfortable with them. <laughs> so, uh, when the Godhead is human-like, then we feel comfortable around Him. We feel there's opportunity to express ourselves, and we can be then all that we can could be. He's facilitating that. This is the idea of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. The, the, the Godhead is facilitating humans to be all to f- express themselves fully, to be all that they could possibly be which ends up being a transcendence even of the limitations of humanity. When, when humanity then crosses into divinity and there's similarity and there's, there's difference at the same time. So Krishna is speaking Bhagavad Gita. He's Bhagavan, Swayam Bhagavan. And so naturally he's speaking about bhakti ultimately. He's speaking to... to, to it's Krishna, Bhagavan speaking to a bhakta. Krishna speaking to Arjun. So what must be the subject then of Bhagavad Gita? If it is Bhagavan and Swayam Bhagavan, Sri Krishna, speaking to his bhakta, his devotee Arjun, the subject must be bhakti. How can it be anything else? But there are many subjects in Bhagavad Gita, as I say. So this is how to understand it if we study it carefully. My Guru Maharaj, when he would meet someone from the world who had said they had read Bhagavad Gita, he would ask, Oh, have you? Uh, do you know the conclusion of the Gita? And they would often reply that they didn't think there really was a conclusion. It's just kind of a conglomeration of interesting thoughts and and so forth. And maybe you just the kind of book that you just open up with your eyes closed and then open them 
that speaks to you, something like that. There's that too, but, but there's a system to it also. It's uh, well thought out and there's a progression and one verse leads into the next, one chapter into the next, and so on and so forth. To help us appreciate that and enter into the spirit of that conversation between Krishna and Arjuna. I spoke last night about the nature of revelation being a conversation, being a discourse, not a, not a monologue, but a, but a conversation. God speaking, but not to, to stones, maybe to stone-hearted people, but with a view to soften their heart so they come to life and be, as I said, all they can be. If human beings are about love, in the pursuit of that, then Krishna is that um, love uh, personified, coming to help us experience the, the, the love that uh, human life is about. So if Bhagwan, Sri Krishna, speaks to his bhakta, Arjuna, the conversation must be about a bhakti, but it's about a bhakti directly and bhakti indirectly. So here, in this chapter, it's about bhakti indirectly. By speaking about astanga yoga, he talks about a particular discipline and how that discipline, to one extent or another, affords one the type of intimacy of, of bhakti, the intimacy that bhakti affords, how close it gets to that, how short of that, it falls, it, how uh, readily it, um, the discipline, if you will, uh, will, compares with that of bhakti in terms of its ease and in terms of requirements that may be there or, or not there. We'll find un- a, quite a number of requirements here in this chapter for the uh, effective practice of Astanga Yoga that then will be contrasted as the text continues on with the requirements for bhakti. Here we'll hear about the necessary of sitting on a seat that's not too high, not too low, eating not too much, but not too little, sleeping not too much, but not too little, and uh, sitting in, 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 in not just any old position, but with the back erect and, and the eyes focused in a certain place on the tip of the nose and so forth. And, and uh, prerequisite of celibacy is mentioned here. Anasrita karma phalam, it begins. Just see, here's the beginning. Anasrita karma phalam, karyam karma kurutiya, sasanyasita yogi cha, naniragnir na chakriya. It's not this and it's not that. And he says, here he's talking about the, the very spirit of it. This again, as I say, will be contrasted with bhakti, which this chapter is leading us up to. At a certain point in the text in this chapter, Krishna will explain how, with all of this yoga in place, without some slight ingress of bhakti, it won't be effective. He gets a little enthusiastic in the chapter towards the end about yoga. And he says, oh, amongst different types of ascetics and knowers and so forth, the best is yogi. He talks about the best kind of yogi and the best kind of yoga. And if we play those out, as they're explained in the text, we see that he's speaking about bhakti there. So it, it's leading up to that. Then hmm? when he goes to the full expression of bhakti, we find, oh, it's very different. You can, you can sit, you can lay down, you can, you can do it in your sleep. If that yogi sitting erect 
Focusing his eyes on the end of his nose falls asleep. That's the end of the yoga practice. <laughs> right there. <laughs> but in, in bhakti, it is mentioned here, you can follow, in Bhagavati, it can be done even in one sleep. Patram pushpam palam toyam. What's required? A leaf, a flower, or maybe some water. And you can't live without water, so you have to have water. That's readily available. Of course, corporations have bought it all up, I've heard, but <laughs> get your own well. That's, own your own water. This is important. So, the uh, idea is, is that you don't need anything to do bhakti. Oh, just one small thing, you need, you need to give your heart. That's all. And here we'll find, comparatively, there are a number of required things for the practice of, of effective practice of yoga. A number of things must be in place. But you don't have to give your heart as much. So it may be easier. But you won't get as much out of it either. You understand? <laughs> because real giving is giving of the heart, right? Only as much as the heart is behind the giving are we actually giving or sacrificing. So if we have to if we have to make some effort and have certain things in place and so forth, then that's some type of sacrificing that's involved. You can't sit like this, you have to sit like this. If you have to be celibate, then you can't be in a relationship. So you have to give that. Some giving up is required. Bhakti says, no, you can have a relationship, you can do anything, but you have to give your heart completely. <laughs> On the outside, it's very simple. Nothing's required. But actually, he's asking everything. That's why you get everything from that, understand? So somewhat of a mechanical type of yoga is given here, very sophisticated, nonetheless. Sophisticated type of kind of uh, scientific yoga. So they, they like to sometimes hook people up, the yogis too, those different, uh, what do you call it, you know, things they put on their head and, and all, and they check it on the computer and see how fast his heart is going, how his brain is working and so on and so forth. Very sophisticated science for making the mind peaceful and and ultimately having experience beyond mind, beyond reason, experience of the, of the, of the self. To step, step outside of oneself is the idea. And ultimately one steps outside of oneself in yoga, as described in, in Gita here, in the sixth chapter, by the help, with the aid of Paramatma. By seeing the, by identifying with the Paramatma in a unity of Kairalyam, oneness, one steps outside of one's own self. But it's a very, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, complex and uh, very uh, sophisticated and very thorough type of analysis that's given in brief in here, in, in this chapter, that's explained in detail, and for example, in the Yoga Sutras, of the nature of mind, and so over which yoga is centered around getting a grip on. So it's attractive. After all, it's an attractive proposal to be able to master the mind whenever we, and to whatever extent we can focus it on anything, that, that uh, to a large extent determines our success in that particular field, right? So to completely focus the mind, to master the mind and the body, and the subtle goings-on of the, of the body as well. This is a, it's an interesting art. And 
science, uh, if you will, very, uh, very sophisticated, and there's a long history of, of success in it, as well. So here, Krishna takes, uh, gives some attention to this. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a significant uh, spiritual discipline, but again, for the purpose of contrasting it with, uh, with the full face of yoga in bhakti. And, and part of that contrast is the difficulty of it in comparison to the ease of bhakti, saving except for the fact, as I've mentioned, giving one's heart is not always so easy. But it's not so hard either when the perfect object of the heart uh, which beats for, if you will, for love is, is placed before it. It may be hard to give your heart to something, but it's not that hard to give it to Krishna, is the point. <laughs> Therefore, hearing about him and so forth and experiencing him via the experience of uh, ecstatic experience of advanced devotees and so forth makes it attractive and easy. So giving the heart is not easy, but bhakti is easy, which is about giving the heart because it brings us before Bhagavan. It allows a heart to interface with a perfect, the perfect object of love. And so we're shy to give our heart, but in the face of the perfect object of love, it's a quite a bit easier. So, can you even give your heart fully to yoga, to gyan? The answer from the bhakti perspective is no, it's not possible. Brahman, paramatma, that's why even shantarasa is, is made light of in bhakti tradition of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. There the object of love, the vishayalambana is, is paramatma, the udipanas, anubhavs I should say, are these yogic movements, mudras, and so forth, and postures, and so on. This has been completely, this is not the subject of Chaitanya Vaishnavism, per se. I mean, it is talked about, but only for the point of, as I say, differentiating it from Dasya Bhakti, Sakya Bhakti, Vatsalya Bhakti, Madhurya Bhakti, of Braj, of, of Krishna Lila. So here in the beginning, Anyway, I'll read from the first verse. This is some preface. Krishna says about yoga, dhyan yoga, yoga of um, now involving meditation, focusing the mind. Samadhi is, is the subject here of this of this chapter. Yoga samadhi. Previously, he mentioned yoga samadhi. He said samadhana bhitiyate bhogaishvaya prasaktanam. You can't have samadhi if you've got too many things on your mind. Boga Aishvarya, Boga Aishvarya. If you are attracted to the glare of the world, of things, of enjoying the the the, 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 the night lights, the Aishvarya, the the attraction of the world, Boga Aishvarya. Samadho Navidhiyate. There be no samadhi, no fixing the mind. So he says. To start out, anashrita karma phalam, then karyam karma karoti He wants to speak about a very kind of heart of yoga, if you will. And he says, anashrita karma phalam, 
Kama Phala means the fruits of work. People work for the fruit, for the carrot, at the end of the stick, for the paycheck, at the end of the week, or at the end of the month. We're working for the fruits. There's an attachment for a fruit, if you will, a result, and so we undergo the work on account of that. That's fueling the work. The results, the fruits, and attachment to them, that's why we work. Because I want something, right? Therefore I work. I want to get something from the work. I have a sense of need, desire, attachment, so forth, so therefore I work. And this keeps us working. This keeps us in the world or in the realm or under the jurisdiction of karma. So the more we are fruit hunting, the more we have to work. The two are corresponding. As soon as you lose interest in the in the fruits, then where's the motivation for the work? Without motivation, how can you do the work? Right. So the world is moving. All the movement, the work, the action, karma of the world is moving as a result of attachment to fruits, to the results. And what's been described previously in the Gita is this idea of working without attachment to the results. But this is very different from the way the world works. It's sometimes said to give up the fruits. We think, well, how do you, have, how do you give up the fruit? work, you give up the whole fruit of, the, of your work. It means you give up attachment to the fruit. You can still take the fruit. There's going to be a fruit or a result from your work. You can take it or you can leave it, is the idea. And if you're not attached to it, then you can use it for other things than for yourself, for example, other than for your basic necessities, your sustenance. So attachment to the fruit of work, this is the problem of material existence. And yoga means... This is what Krishna is saying here. He's talking about the spirit of yoga. Whether it be jnana yoga, karma yoga, sannyas yoga, ashtanga yoga, or bhakti yoga. Attachment to the fruits, giving that up, this is, this is this, at the heart. It means sacrifice. Therefore, he also says, what? Anasrita karma phalam karyam karma kurutiya sa sannyasi tu yogi cha naniragnir na chakriya. Agni means fire and Kriya means action. It means here ritualistic action. Karma here also, in the context of the Gita, means work that was prescribed in the socio-religious system of, of the time as enjoined in the sacred texts that corresponded with the psychophysiological makeup of the people under the influence of the gunas, of, the, of, of Tamaguna, Rajaguna, Sattvaguna, these... Um, kind of a modus operandus of, of, of material nature. Our bodies are constituted of these, uh, the influence of these modes in our psyche as well. And so there's going to be a certain type of activity that we'll be more suited for uh, than, than another. This is the whole idea of the Varnashram in, in a dynamic sense. Uh, it seeks to help people find a material balance, right? So that they have, they feel good about themselves materially, and then then they look for something more to do. And if you're still materially un, uncomfortable, then it's hard to think of, it's hard to practice spiritual life if you're too materially uncomfortable.
So, some scope for that. Some scope for, if you want to make a building go very tall, you have to build a foundation wide like this. So some scope for horizontal development, if we want to build a tall house that goes back to the Godhead. So to get our feet on on the ground. So there are certain, in Vedic time, there are certain prescribed duties for different types of people, and our times are not quite like like that, but we have things that we have to do nonetheless, and uh, all of us as human beings, and uh, we should see how to do them, what the motivating, change the motivating force behind them. This is yoga. And when the motivating force is the fruits, then it's boga. That goes along with bogus. Something like that. Maybe it's not really yoga. It's the opposite of yoga. In this verse, Krishna is speaking about uh, bogus yogis, or bogies, who look like yogis. They look like yogis on the outside, but if you look inside, you find they're bogies. They're uh, they're they're bogus. They're they're enjoyers rather than sacrificers. He invokes the term agni, fire. Fire means the sacrifice. Symbolic of the sacrifice. You throw in you throw it into the fire. You, it, you take it in one form and its crude form, and it has some utilization. You throw it in the fire. It has another form, another utilization. It's consumed by the fire, and then. Like the meal, you take it and cook it and distribute it to so many people, something like that. So, the fire is uh, trans- has a transforming nature. It said to be a purifier, it purifies things. The idea, of course, of the fire is to throw yourself in the fire. But we throw things in the fire, in the sacrifice. You throw material possessions and whatnot. So he invokes, same way, the, 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 the metaphor of the fire, the sacrifice, the sacrificial fire, he says. One who lights no fire, he says. It means one who does no sacrifice, their life is dark, dim, dingy, dark. There's no light there. When the sacrificial fire is lit in, in human society, then it has life, then it has vitality, has meaning. Then, it, then it's alive and growing. So, naniragnir, nachakriya. When there's no fire and no corresponding sacrifice with that. He said, there's no yoga. It's boga. Sometimes it's thought that we should be all cautious of these American yogis. India, that's the place to go to find a real yoga teacher. But per capita, there's no place that has more bogus yogis than India in the world. Of course, it's more yogis. too. But uh, this is going back a long time, Bhagavad Gita. Quite a long time it was spoken, and apparently there was misrepresentation of yoga and sannyas. These the two things are being discussed here in the verse: na sannyasi, na yogicha, sa sannyasi, na yogicha. Uh, Krishna is connecting the two: sannyas and yoga. He says a sannyasi and a yogi are synonymous. Sannyasi means was spoken about in the previous verse, karma, previous chapter, karma sannyas. When one is practiced in working without attachment to the fruits of the work, but doing the work because it should be done. In other words, there's a purpose in it in and of itself, fruit aside, result aside, long term. If you work according to the scriptural directives, if you act 
in accordance with the scriptural directives, there will be a long-term kind of invisible result that doesn't show up in the immediate in terms of the fruits. But when it becomes practiced in that, working without attachment to the fruit, there's some, some wisdom starts to come within one. If you, if you work without attachment to things, the nature of things starts to become better understood in a way that attachment to things would never afford you. Do you understand? Just like if you're, as I've often said, if you're too, too close to a thing, you can't see it for what it is. Attachment means to extend yourself to a thing and, and to see it subjectively rather than objectively. So when we're attached to things, we can't see them for what they are. So when one gives up attachment to the fruits of work, and one works because the work is supposed to be done, the action is supposed to be performed, and so forth, one comes to a better understanding of the things that are the result of work. One starts to become acquainted to whom they do belong. One starts to see things, the world, that means, in relation to its source. That's to see things much more clearly than we see, and if, than if we see them independent of their source. If we see something and we know whom it belongs to, it makes us look at it in a particular way, right? We don't think of taking it for ourselves. So not knowledge of the of proprietorship causes detachment, doesn't it? If I know that you own that, then I think, that's nice, but of course, I don't think of taking it. If I think nobody owns it, it's nice. Maybe I'll, maybe it'll be mine. Maybe I'll enjoy it. So when we start to give up the attachment to the re results, then we start to see things more clearly. And um, in light of themselves, what all they are, by connecting them with the source. So, this wisdom comes, and with the wisdom, then, the necessity of certain actions starts to diminish as well. So, the previous chapter is karma sannyas. So, giving up certain actions that are no longer required because the yogi has advanced to a certain stage by detachment from the fruits or the results of work that he started to become, or she started to become peaceful within, within, and the need to move even has has diminished. Some inner satisfaction. He doesn't, or she doesn't need distractions and just things to do. Uh, so karma sannyas. So now he's talking about yoga. He just finished talking about sannyas, karma sannyas. Now he's talking about yoga. So he says, what you should know is. Everything I've said about the karma sannyasi is true about a yogi. So we're, we're, there's a progression here. So if you're really going to be a yogi, you have to be a sannyasi in this sense, in this spirit. What is that? That the fire of sacrifice has been lit, he said. That sannyasi who just gives up work and lights no fire, he's not a sannyasi. Neither a yogi. Sa sannyasi, yogi. So he's putting these two together. He's putting the spirit of yoga. He's going from karma sannyas to yoga and he's saying, here's where they connect. This is how they're the same. They're centered on a detachment from the fruits of work.
And when that reaches a certain point, then it becomes really possible to sit, which is obviously, and as we'll hear, what yoga is about. And then engage in this, um, this art, if you will, of yoga, this very developed kind of science or art of controlling the inner, inner workings, the outer workings. You've already dealt with that to the extent that you can work on the subtle workings of, of your karmic makeup through a system of yoga. It deals with all subtle energies in the body and so forth. And you can see these, you know, yogis can make all types of postures and make their bodies do all kinds of things and slow down the beat of the heart and, and so on and, and focus the mind. And uh, So some requirements. And this is the, the, the real heart of it, so to speak, the spirit of it. So he says, you should know. And apparently there were many bogey yogis around at the time. <laughs> this was a long time ago, so it's not a new, new, new thing. And it shouldn't scare us away that there is misrepresentation. If there's misrepresentation, that means there must be something that's, that uh, warrants good representation. So we should seek it and find it, that's all. It's available. As much as there's misrepresentation, we know there's something there to be misrepresented. <laughs> Something's being misrepresented, so it exists. We see the misrepresentation, we think it doesn't exist. But how can it be a misrepresentation unless there's something there to be represented in the first place? So Krishna says, no, no. There are, there, there are people, they, in the name of sannyas, they give up work. Lazy people. That's not sannyas. They light no fire. They perform their work. And yogi also. Hmm? This is how they're the same. Then he says, Oh, Arjun, son of Pandu, know that which is sannyas to be yoga. For without renouncing selfish motivation, no one can become a yogi. Though we can just see the extent to which yoga, from the Gita's perspective, has been misrepresented. I saw a film on the way over, on the airplane, part of it, and and it was uh, was was about relationships, I guess, largely from a female perspective, somewhat from a male perspective too. It's about young people and in the pursuit of relationships and with a whole bunch of different players. And anyway, one of them was a was a yoga instructor. She was portrayed as being particularly flaky and uh, and sensuous. <laughs> Yoga instructor. <laughs> and in the end, she had no relationship and decided to go to India. <laughs> so it wasn't really, really a becoming depiction of, uh, of yoga. Maybe that's the popular perception of it, but the Gita gives a very different idea here. And it's good to go to the source, isn't it? Krishna's got a name given to him by Sanjaya here in the Gita at the end. Sanjaya is a mystic. Sanjaya is the one who saw the conversation between Krishna and Arjun taking place on the battlefield while he was in the palace of the king. And the king was blind, so he asked Sanjaya, what are they saying? And Sanjaya was not at the battlefield, but he could see it anyway, so he was quite a mystic by ordinary standards. But he himself, Sanjaya, calls Krishna Yogeshwar. And in the Bhagavatam, Krishna is called 
Yogeshwar, Yogeshwar. It's a double. It's a, it's it's true, but it has to be emphasized because he looks like he's the enjoyer of the fruits, and he is. But somebody has to be the enjoyer. That's the point. If there's a sacrificer, then somebody has to be the enjoyer. And if that person is the appropriate center, then by giving everything to him, he will naturally distribute it to everyone else, the way that everyone will become nourished. So Yogeshwar means the master of yoga, the master of mysticism. Sanjay wants to, wants to use that term at the very end of the Gita to put him in perspective. He's an authority on yoga. And the Bhagavatam uses this in the, in the Gopi Vastraharana Leela. Krishna steals the clothes of the gopis. And Sukadev calls him Yogeshwara, Yogeshwara. He's the double master of, he's the master of the master of mysticism. If he's the master of mysticism in the yoga, in the Gita, master of yoga in the Gita, speaking about all different yoga disciplines, and so he's so lucid on it. Every chapter of Gita is so and, and exciting. Such a lucid explanation of yoga. And in Bhagavatam, then, he's playing out the whole full meaning of yoga, the full expression of yoga. And he's stealing the clothes of the gopis. In the context of doing that, Sukadeva wants to let it behind us. This is an extraordinary person. Yogeshwara, Yogeshwara. So, point being here, his explanation of yoga, this should be taken very seriously. Why we need the Yoga Sutras at all? We can read the sixth chapter, we can understand everything about Astanga Yoga and put it down. Any question? Yes? work without touching for its fruits, it's always brought to my mind like this employee who just couldn't care less, you know, just doing the bare minimum and like whatever. And surely that can't mean what No, no. Could it also mean like a person who's so enthusiastic about it, and so passionate about it that they don't really care whether they're getting paid or not. But they're, just they're not watching the clock. <laughs> well, in the context of the Gita, it, it means that cert, oh, certain duties are to be performed, certain work, and uh, it should be done because it should be done. It's kind of the dutiful type of uh, action that um, is advocated that will bring order to the society and balance to individuals and so forth. And because it's prescribed in the, in the sacred texts, then uh, it has its origins in, 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 in divinity. And if these actions are performed dutifully, then there's a, there's a result that's invisible. Besides the practical, immediate result, there's a purification that results from seeing oneself in relation to the divine and acting accordingly rather than independently and acting whimsically. So there are prescribed duties in the sacred texts and they're meant, to, as I say, to, to, to teach us that not to act whimsically. But in today's society and so forth, you're wondering what it means to work without attachment to the results. And no, it doesn't mean to work and you can be attached to the work but not to the results. 
In other words, you want to do it, and you want to do it right. You do it because it's supposed to be done, and you and you you, you execute it very uh, efficiently and thoughtfully, and you do your best, and so forth. And almost like that, that you then the clock goes over, and you don't know you're working extra time, and and uh, something like that. And so it's it's quite the opposite of what you're talking about as an example of the kind of the the tamaguna. It's not attached to, to the work. I want to do it, do it nicely. Attached to the fruits of the work. That you're doing it not for the fruit, but for the work itself. Something like that. It's a little different than, you know, seeing that there are prescribed duties given in the scripture for certain people and so forth. That, because you could just find something you really like to do and and do that and. It will it will make you feel good about yourself and balanced and so forth. I suppose in that sense it's it's synonymous, but it may not in and of itself beget spiritual thinking or make one open to that. But anyway, the general idea is that that we're working for a fruit, which generally means that you're not able to get out of the moment everything that's that's there in the moment, in the present. You're working for the future rather than living in the present. To give it a kind of a popular twist there. You know, if you're if you're if you're just attached to the fruit you're 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 over here projecting what you're going to be doing to one extent or another rather than paying attention where you are and getting out of it everything that it has to offer. And Yoga really is about seeing things for what they are. I think it was Einstein who said there's two ways of looking at the at life. One way is that there are no miracles, and the other way is that uh, life itself is a miracle, and everything's a miracle. So the latter way is is a more <laughs> dynamic and alive way to look at. It. I mean, life itself. You know, they they they'd like to put a, put aside any kind of spiritual in science explanation of life because they can't find or see, observe a spiritual cause. But its existence is so improbable that uh, it's, it's in and of itself it's, uh, it has to be termed a, a miracle by the, just by statistically speaking. It's, you know, they have that saying, you know, if you put a hundred, whatever, a thousand monkeys on typewriters and let them type forever, how long would it take to get, you know, by chance? Shakespeare, so a work like Shakespeare, so the chances of life are are such as well. So that's miraculous, not for me. So, what else? Another question? Yes. I'm always a bit confused about all these different chapters of yoga, and I'm leading up to the conclusion. Starting to, to devotee friends of mine, you know, we were kind of like wondering how much. Uh, uh, all these verses can be like practically applied to the devotee life, or that we should see them in the broader light. As you also said, that you know they're, they're being contrasted with, with with bhakti. It's a bit vague, but you know, it's kind of like should we apply some of this to our lives, or will it kind of come naturally to us when we try to apply the conclusion? Yeah, a little of both. The idea, in a sense, is that whatever is the results of different yogas will be found in bhakti as well. So there's something that carries over. Prabhupada liked to 
explain the whole thing in terms of bhakti. So, so you can do that as well, even though they are speaking about Krishna is speaking about particular disciplines. Here, for example, he's, he just com- he just said the two, karma sannyas and yoga are the same, and this is how they're the same. And you could say bhakti is the same in that sense too, right? It's about it's self-sacrifice has to be there and as as the center and so forth. So, so you can take from each chapter. Uh, here, you know, in this chapter, it'll be described about sitting. So, we have sitting. We also do japa. You can employ those things that are mentioned there. It, it, it speaks about environment, place, in order to do to do this uh, dhyan meditation. So, you know, we generally don't chant our japa while we're driving on the freeway. But rather, you know, we, we find a place for that, and it's peaceful and so forth, as mentioned here. So there's a carryover. Another question? About attachments and not seeing things for what they are. Is there such a way seeing Krishna and not seeing him for what he is? If you're not attached to him, you won't see him for what he is. (laughs) That's the difference. (laughs) If you're attached to things, you won't see them for what they are. But if you're not attached to Krishna... Then you won't see him for for what he is. Hmm. Can I know that what I'm seeing is real? Um, well, I, I think that, you, that there's. What are you seeing? <laughs> when you practice bhakti, then you're following a particular school, and things are talked about what you should expect to see, at what stage, and so on and so forth. You look and see at this stage, or what stage I'm at, and you'll see I'm having the corresponding experience. So gradually you're coming to the, you're, you're developing attachment for Krishna. But then you start to see Krishna in a particular way. If you love Krishna as a friend, you'll see him in a particular way. If you love him as a parent, you'll see him in a slightly different way. He shows himself differently to different devotees also. No one sees him as clearly as, as Radha does, in one sense. No blue light. Right. He's not a blue light, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, to protect yourself from your imagination, you have to keep good company. And, uh, yeah, just like you have a doctor or something like that. So he tells you the medicine, and he sees the result, and he adjusts the prescription and so forth. That's so you have a guru for good guidance. And knowing Krishna means you have to become attached to Krishna, so you become attached to Krishna's devotee, then Krishna will become attached to you. Even before you're attached to him, <laughs> he'll become attached to you because his devotee becomes attached to you. He, wants to, he or she wants to help you. What else? I would like to know why uh, women don't, uh, don't get the Brahmin thread. I don't know. Is it just tradition? Oh, is that, uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's not that much part of Vaishnavism. Part of Varnashram. I'm not an expert in Varnashram. I'm an expert in Vaishnavism. But some aspects of Varnashram have been incorporated into, in within Vaishnavism. They're uh, not essential, but they may be. Some of them may be essential from a pragmatic point of view, from a theoretical point of view. They're not, but from a pragmatic point of view, they may be. The thread isn't. It doesn't happen to be one of them, but. To give an example, along those lines, it used to be the custom that when one would, if one was a Brahmin, 
and had the Brahman and the thread, and they took the Vaishnava initiation and they would give up the thread. Because the Vaishnava initiation is on a different level than the Varnashram, uh, which is under the jurisdiction of Dharma, which is distinguishing this caste from this caste, this type of person from that type of person. Vaishnavism is more looking at the unity of people in terms of their all being souls rather than at the difference. And Vaishnavism is, is looking at their potential as souls. But sometimes it has to slightly include some Varnashram kind of considerations because in spite of the fact that they're all sold, they're in different positions and, and they have different tendencies and so forth. So sometimes it's invoked to an extent, but it should, can never get, should never get the upper hand. And the morality and whatnot that is governed by the Dharma Shastras and Varnashram always has to be seen from through the lens of bhakti rather than bhakti being seen through the lens of of morality and Varnashram. After all, Krishna says, Vidyakartaram avayam, about Varnashram, he says, this Varnashram comes from me, but I've got nothing to do with it. I'm not involved, he said. Mahaprabhu said the same thing. So, uh, it's all part of Varnashram. And Bhakti, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsitthakur began giving the thread to disciples who got initiated in the Vaishnav Diksha because people in general were thinking that Vaishnavism uh, didn't have much spiritual currency. And so he gave them the thread by way of making a public statement who gets initiated into Vaishnavism. They become a Brahmana and more, and they qualify to do archan, worship the deity, and so forth, and so on. So these are just customs and... uh, the, the, the systems have their origins in, in sacred texts, but there are different types of sacred te- texts. So, like I say, some govern Dharma Shastras, some are governing the Vaishnava and Bhakti, and School of Bhakti, and so forth. So, somewhere within Dharma Shastras, it's probably mentioned about the Upanayana and the thread, or in the Veda, possibly, in a, given to the male child at this time, or something, I don't know, at a certain age. And, and um, so it, it's not a, it, it, again, we can see in Vaishnavism the two extremes. Bhakti Siddhanta gave it, and Bhakti Vinod took it off at the time of initiation. It's not an essential item. So the men are burdened by carrying on some, you know, tradition by that, that doesn't have much bearing on Bhakti. Now there are any practical, any practical utilization in the, in the Western world, people always ask you, what's that? And you have to say, well, I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's a thread. <laughs> Ladies, we don't burden them with that. That's the idea. <laughs> At the time in India, Bhakti Siddhanta, then it would mean something to people. Oh, he's making a point, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 